This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine and more. And Jason, it was week 23 working from home, although I did go to the office for the first time this week since March. So our world is slowly reopening with starts and stops, as we know, especially if you look at our schools and colleges and universities. We're going to talk about that. A lot of backtracking, as you know, but you also are back from vacation. You got on a plane. I got on a plane and came right back into quarantine. So a couple <laughs> steps forwards and a few steps back. Uh, yeah, it's sort of an amazing world that we're living in right now. You can move around to a point, And we talked about all of that with so many of our guests across the show this week. What we've seen is the confluence of two pandemics. Morehouse College President David Thomas, he talked to us about the dual crises facing this country and why his school is going all online for the fall. Plus, how Carnival is navigating the financial waves caused by the pandemic. We begin with this week's issue, a double issue, the vaccine issue. Bloomberg News Markets and ETF reporter Claire Ballantyne and the editor of the magazine, Joel Weber, joined us to talk about Wall Street's view on what a vaccine could do to markets. Joel kicks it off. We put all of our muscle on into this um, vaccine issue, double issue, and one of the things that you know is just uniquely Bloomberg, I, I think, is is you know bringing it back to the markets. And one of the questions that we sort of put to the equities team was sort of like, okay, well, if there is a vaccine at some point, um, what does that mean? What will what will that do for for the markets? Would there be a bump, or would that bump be short lived, or? Or would there be no bump? Um, and that was sort of where we left it. It was just an open-ended invite to the equities team. And, and Claire kind of picked that that up. And, and Claire, like, you came up with a couple scenarios that um, that people thought could be likely. What, what were they? The first is sort of a, a new taper tantrum um, with the idea that the Fed, which has really stepped in and helped um, stabilize markets, begins to slowly kind of draw back. That really worries people, and we see sort of a new taper tantrum, um, which would obviously be, be very negative, um, could see stocks and bonds falling. Um, that's sort of, you know, uh, maybe worst case. What else could happen? Maybe, so, Claire, just uh, let, let me interrupt if I can. Remind us what a taper tantrum really is, because we've seen this before. And just remind us what that looks like to, to an everyday investor. And not to be confused with temper tantrum that we right. all deal with, <laughs> with, with some which, of our bosses or spouses or whatever. Or, or my two-year-old. <laughs> or your two-year-old. <laughs> well, yeah, they have, they have some similarities. It's <laughs> true. Some, some fear, um, you know, because... The Fed has really supportive markets. You know, what happens when they take away that helping hand? And a lot of it isn't driven by what has actually happened. It's more just the fear of that. Right. Um, so in that case, could see stocks and bonds falling in tandem. Um, a possibility, you know, not definitely not inevitable or anything like that. So what I think, and I love number two, um, because I feel like if anything, the Fed isn't going to rush away anytime soon. But talk to us a little bit about the second scenario here. Yeah, so we sort of um, came up with the, the phrase to call this the supercharged status quo. So this means that, you know, a vaccine is successfully introduced. The market's very um, happy about that. And, you know, market goes up. Um, and people are saying that that, you know, could happen for obvious reasons, but also because the Fed isn't going to necessarily step away from these huge stimulus efforts right away. Um, 
a lot of it is because, like what we saw with the taper tantrum back in 2013, it's very hard to undo this quantitative easing. So in that case, market goes up. Also, everything just gets more expensive. And so behind door number three is what, Claire? (laughs) Well, this is the idea that some of these value stocks that have really been beaten down in this um, post-COVID world means that maybe those can start to do well. So some of those areas that have really um, been hurt hard, like the airlines, um, cyclicals, small caps, those could start to outperform. Um, And that would be the case of a a broadening market. You know, we've seen the tech stocks do well, but with a vaccine, that could be the gateway to many other sectors also doing well. And I got to say, can I just, you know, Joel, like you look at something like um, United is down 61% this year. You know, when things start to get better, you know, these are the kinds of names that ultimately will take off. I mean that in in theory, right? Like, right, in theory. The, the airline the airline industry is obviously one that I think a lot of people um, have focused on, and you know I think Claire has written about the ETF jets, which has become this really interesting one of, uh, and, and saw just a like a basically a record uh, uh, set a record for inflows because so many people were like trying to call the bottom, and then you know even now though we you know we still don't um, have a recovery that is meaningful for that industry. So, but, you know, value clear is something that um, gets kicked around a lot is something that like it's just this revival is always just around the corner. What, why would a vaccine in particular help value stocks? Yeah, so value stocks, we're talking about um, shares that are sort of trading at, at low prices relative to their, to their assets. Um, and so a lot of these um, have really been hurt by the fact that you know, we've all been locked down. And so, you know, we can't go out to shopping malls or restaurants, things like that. So some of these um, areas with a vaccine, people might be able to, to get out more, to give like, small businesses um, their money, and that could help get things more back to a more normal economy. And that was Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber joined with Claire Ballantyne, author of what I thought was one of the most important stories this week, because it starts to answer the question, Carol, what does this next normal look like when it comes to the markets? Gotta say, getting back to normal, that would certainly be nice. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Jason, we head to your home state. That's right. Back to the ATL. We're going to hear from Morehouse College President David Thomas, why his school, world-renowned, is going all online this fall and what it's like to be in Atlanta right now facing these many crises. He has been ahead of the academic pack. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to Bloomberg Business Week. This week, we're focusing a lot, Carol, on what it's like to get back to business and most notably, back to school. Right. And simply put, Jason, it's not easy. One incredibly thoughtful voice on this is Morehouse College President David Thomas. We caught up with him in our own Bloomberg News higher education finance reporter, Janet Lauren. Janet began by giving us the big picture. A lot of schools have sent kids home because of higher test rates of coronavirus. We saw on uh, earlier this week, the University of North Carolina said students should go home because a lot of kids were testing positive. Notre Dame had 80 students test positive in one day, and they decided to pause in-person activity for two weeks and see what happens. And Michigan State said that they would they would not be having on-campus program. Right. 
Yeah, that's our backdrop. Let's bring in David Thomas. He's president of Morehouse College. He joins us uh, on the phone from Atlanta on this Wednesday, along, of course, as he just heard with uh, Janet Lauren, our higher education finance reporter. President Thomas, so nice to have you here with us. You know, there's a lot on the plate of our country's colleges and universities, the virus reopening, virtual learning, the cost of education, inequalities. What's top of mind for you right now? Well, top of, top of mind for me is, one, making sure that the quality of what we offer online this semester far exceeds what we were able to do last semester, and that we're also able to create community in this virtual environment, because that's one of the things that draws students to Morehouse College. Um, And so we've required all of our faculty who are going to teach uh, this semester to be certified in online education because one of the things we learned is that there's a difference between online education and remote instruction. Remote instruction is where you essentially do what you do in an in-person classroom. You're just being taped or delivering it on Zoom or some other video platform. Whereas online education, there's actually a pedagogy to it that makes it much more dynamic. So we've invested in that. And the other thing that, you know, keeps me awake at night is, you know, whether or not we'll be able to bring our students back for the spring semester, given what we're seeing happen with the virus, in particular in the state of Georgia, where our positivity rates, uh, testing rates, are in double digits right now. Well, you made the decision quite early on among colleges that you could not do in-person because there was too much risk for everybody, not only the students, but also the other people working on campus. Now, other schools are seeing their decisions may not have been such a great idea to invite students onto campus and they're having to pivot at a very late date when kids are already there. Can you talk about what went into your decision? Yeah, it was it was very, um, very straightforward. We very early on decided that the number one priority for us would be uh, keeping our students and our staff and faculty safe from a health and wellness perspective. And then our second priority was ensuring the quality of what we could provide educationally. And the last, the third priority was what, what's going to be the financial impact because we have to stay viable financially. And being clear about that made it pretty straightforward for us to move through our decision tree and to wind up being among the first schools to say that we would be fully remote, especially in the context of Georgia, right. where we also faced a very confusing political environment where literally at one point we had the governor suing the mayor over whether masks could be mandated in the city of Atlanta because the governor was not going to allow that to happen in the state of Georgia. And we were going to mandate masks on our campus. And it's hard to enforce a rule, you know, when students might raise the question, well, that's that's not legal in the state. If the mayor right. can't do it, how can the college do it? Right. 
So so that just led us on a decision tree. And when we saw the rate of positive tests going up, that led us to reverse our earlier decision, which was that we would be in a low-density uh, hybrid format um, and, uh, but it was, you know, in, in many ways, it was pretty straightforward because we just got very clear about, you know, what our priorities were and our principles. You may also know that we were the first school, first scholarship granting school to cancel fall, uh, football mm. in the country. And we did that almost three months ago, uh, and using the same set of principles. What we've seen is the confluence of two pandemics. The first is the COVID pandemic, and the second is the pandemic of institutionalized racism in our institutions and organizations. And, you know, if we look at COVID, it's revealed just stark inequities in health outcomes along lines of race. And then if we look at the pandemic of institutionalized racism, what it brings our attention to is the fact that there are still policies and practices that give license to the conscious and unconscious biases that devalue black, black lives and brown lives. That's Morehouse College President David Thomas, along with Bloomberg News higher ed finance reporter Janet Lauren. Those biases and institutionalized racism that President Thomas talked about are really, Jason, the root of our problems. And what struck us is how he said that well-known leaders are now talking about it openly, and that gives him some hope for some changes. And check out that entire conversation on our podcast feed. Coming up, how do you think about making sure that you're developing a resilient supply chain across a lot of different areas. We're going to hear from the president and CEO of Blue Apron, Linda Kozlowski. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, food has been a theme, you know, that we return to a lot in our show, including this week. Big changes as a result of the virus. We are all cooking and eating at home more than ever before. No one knows that more than Blue Apron President and CEO Linda Kozlowski, who has learned to adapt her business and as a leader. As things have evolved, you know, obviously when, uh, when COVID first hit, it was uncertain, you know, when things were going to change, how things were going to change, how people's behavior and reactions would adjust as uh, as things move forward. And what we are seeing is we are seeing continued demand for the product um, as as people sort of grapple with the new reality and think about how much time they want to spend at home versus how much time they want to, you know, want to be out even as things open again. Um, there's a lot of new information out in the in the world about. Uh, about continuing to be cautious and continuing to um, to sort of stay inside when possible and and how to safely have contacts with other people. But we are seeing sort of the manifestation of the trend that we talked about in early May, which is the fact that 
people are telling us that no matter what happens, um, they are starting to plan on cooking at home more. Um, this is a habit that they've really started to form. Um, again, internal and external research is all pointing, pointing to the same thing, that no matter what happens as things start to ease up and restaurants open, what have you, that um, people have gotten a lot more confident in the kitchen and they plan on continuing to cook at home and they, they want um, interesting solutions to help them think about how to make that time more connected to family and less focused on preparation and planning. So, so Linda, we're continuing to see that trend. I do wonder, Linda, too, you know, when you think about scenario planning, right, you think about those things that, you know, out of the box that could happen and the pandemic is certainly one of those things. But I do think as you look down the road, I think, you know, when normal <laughs> returns, you know, what are you doing, though? And are you thinking about, you know, managing an inev- inevitable fall off in your business? Do you anticipate that? Well, I think that's a little bit of what um, what I was referring to earlier. Um, you know, there's always going to be ebbs and flows as people have different needs. But what we're planning for is staying on the same strategy we were on before. So before we actually got into the pandemic, we had a growth strategy that was obviously not based on a pandemic. It was based on product improvements, marketing improvements, and audience expansion. And we already saw that come together in Q1. Um, and now we're continuing to see that uh, those product improvements, which we are continuing to do as we sort of ease out of the pandemic, um, are engaging people and, and keeping them uh, involved with the product. So it's, there will always be ebbs and flows to the business. And again, there's seasonality trends um, when we return to whatever that new normal is. Mm. But we're more focused on the longer-term growth potential of some of the product improvements that we're putting in around variety, flexibility, healthier options, and continuing to drive new ways to create that variety in our business while also managing uh, the complexity and being able to expand our operations without having to put significant capital into that operations. Given we already have so much um, ability to do that now, we we made a lot of investments early on that are now paying off in in automation and the and the ability to um, to scale with labor essentially. Right. So, Linda, talk to us about sort of the supply chain and the logistics side of this. Were there things that you had to sort of resolve along the way? I mean, you've got folks obviously working physically, but you've got other folks working remotely. You're dealing with different suppliers. Talk to us about that process of maybe solving some of those issues. Yeah, so I think the the initial thing that we did was very similar to what a lot of people did, which is how do you think about um, making sure that you're developing a resilient supply chain across um, across a lot of different areas. At the same time, simplicity is key when faced with um, rapidly changing environments. So early on, we did make some modifications to our menu to, um, to simplify and streamline some of the recipe availability to make it faster and easier to pack and to manage logistics. Then over time, we've reintroduced that complexity back in and then it can, again continued to evolve the product itself with new product offerings um, as we were able to manage some of those ebbs and flows and continue to bring labor into the facility. So um, a lot of people had to streamline their, their menus and, and look at ways to, to, to avoid some complexity early on. And we're really happy that we're able to start bringing that complexity back in. We're already um, back up to full service on our, our family menu and, um, and very close to full variety on our two-person menu. And so we're going to continue to do that along with introducing the new products and variety that we have into play. On the supply chain side, that's, some, that's an area where we've had an advantage for quite some time because we work so closely with the producers and because um, we have really, really high quality standards for our ingredients. 
Um, we've always had really great relationships with our suppliers. We can uh, pivot and move very quickly depending on supply. And we also have the ability to substitute and swap out if there's ever a challenge um, because of the, the nature of how our recipes are built. And so we're able to really flex that supply chain to make sure that we don't have to sacrifice any quality during this time where we continue to ramp volume. And that's Blue Apron President and CEO Linda Kozlowski back with us. One of the things we're learning, Carol, we're going to be acting differently going forward, and we're going to be eating and cooking more at home. No doubt about that. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week coming up. No one wants thousands of people stuck at sea. Carnival Corporation CEO and President Arnold Donald on how Carnival is getting back to the high seas. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, Carol, while I was on vacation, I was not notably on a cruise, but you got to look at the future of that business. Wow. Yeah, exactly. An exclusive interview. We caught up with Carnival Corporation's Arnold Donald. We know the cruise industry is one of the hardest hit because of the virus. So many issues at play. They're losing money. They're raising billions more. They're selling off ships. Bottom line, though, it's all about getting passengers back to sea. First of all, you know, our primary uh, responsibilities and therefore our top priority is always compliance, environmental protection, and the health, safety, and well-being of our guests of the people in the places we go, and of course, our Carnival family, our shipboard and shoreside personnel. So, you know, the interests of public health is always in the forefront for us. And how do we get people back on ships? When there's um, social gathering and society has developed uh, the compensating measures that is comfortable with, that we have effectively mitigated the spread of COVID-19, and then we'll be able to cruise again. Now, there are a lot of people, as you know, Carol, who are ready to cruise right now. And in fact, we're looking at starting up in Europe where the spread has been mitigated substantially in places like Germany and Italy. And we're looking at starting up in September there and a few um, cruise lines have. But there's a lot of pent up demand you know, for travel in general and especially for cruise. Well, and what I wonder, Arnold, though, can you kind of drill down a little bit? What are some of the specific protocols that you might put in place to get ships safely back at sea? I've been reading, you know, about different folks and what they might be considering different cruise lines. They're talking about no buffets, constant um, temperature checks, constant testing, maybe no excursions. What specific protocols will you be putting in place? Well, again, as you well know, we, we have a lot of measures in place already on cruise mm-hmm. that often shoreside uh, destinations don't already have or didn't have prior to COVID-19. We do medical screens. We were already doing temperature checks in many cases. Um, we had hand sanitizers throughout the ship and signs all over about washing your hands because we've had to deal with viruses and the over 700 ports and destinations we go to annually for many years. Now, of course, COVID-19 is especially unique because the whole world is shut down. And because of that, there's still a lot of learning around COVID-19. As you know from all the scientists, they're still aligning around epidemiology. They're aligning around testing. They're aligning around the role of testing. The one thing everybody right now is aligned on, though, is that you know good personal care in terms of wearing a mask, washing your hands, um, using hand sanitizers, you know, physical distancing at the appropriate times, but wearing a mask is a great way to mitigate the spread. So for the time being, any cruises that will happen will certainly incorporate some physical distancing and, you know, wearing masks. And of course, what we already have was the the hand sanitizers, et cetera. Beyond that, um, there's a, a plethora of possibilities, but it depends on the destination, 
depends on the level of community spread in that destination, et cetera. So there could be various testing protocols. I mean, that's a possibility. Uh, for the U.S., it's premature. You know, we're not ready to sail here yet. Um, obviously, the community spread is still pretty vibrant here in the U.S. Right. And uh, we're, we're not in a position to sail here. And we're walking cautiously in the other places, too, because our primary interest is to stand with everyone else in mitigating the spread of COVID-19. But I did read your, your Costa Cruz's safety protocols, and you talked about three tests for crew members before boarding. Um, you also talked about, of course, social distancing, new filters. Um, entertainment will have more shows on during the day so that there's smaller groups. And then also no self-service restaurants, so no buffets, which for many who go on a cruise, they're pretty used to it. So there are some changes coming. Oh, yeah, absolutely. For the ones that are going to sail now, we have to be ready, just like hotels today. Any hotel that's open today has to deal with the current situation and the limited knowledge there is. And so for Costa, we are deploying a number of testing protocols. Obviously, for our crew, uh, we have not only testing, but quarantine, et cetera, because it's really important for us to have the clue, crew um, you know, safe from the beginning and then to keep them safe. And obviously, um, once we get guests on board, uh, we'll have protocols on board for them. I do wonder how you do it safely. I mean, Arnold, you know this industry better than everyone uh, and better than most in terms of uh, lay personnel. But I wonder how you do it safely because there have been some smaller cruise operations that have come out of Europe, come out of Alaska, Tahiti. Um, and I believe there were less, at least 10 crew members aboard um, your AIDA cruise ships out of Germany that contacted the virus um, ahead of you getting ready to kind of get back uh, to the seas. Um, that was in August. So I just wonder how do you do this safely when and even when some small cruise operations are starting to go back out on the water and still having problems with the virus and people are contacting the virus. Carol, I think there's two stages. One is you want to reduce the risk of having um, the COVID-19 come on board from shore. So that's the first thing. So you test um, and you monitor and you quarantine in the case of the crew. So the ones you mentioned on AIDA, you know, those crew members were tested before they left their home country and then they were tested again once they arrived in Germany and we got some positives. They were then retested again, and a couple of, in several of those cases, the individuals got a double negative test after that, which meant they had a false positive. And then the others were obviously isolated and quarantined, and so the risk of them spreading it on board was zero because we wouldn't have them sail, okay? Now, once you're at that level, the, the next question is, uh, what else are you doing to mitigate spread? And that's where all the other practices on board in the event you do get someone on board who has COVID-19, if it's in society, um, if it's out there in general, chances are you eventually will have someone on board a ship that will have it. And so the, the trick then, of course, is to make certain that you are able to quickly identify that, you can isolate the person, and that during the time they were exposed, there was plenty of mitigation of risk protocols in place, so the probability of spread has been greatly reduced. And that's where, you know, wearing masks, physical distancing, washing your hands, um, using a hand sanitizer, et cetera, all come into play. Arnold, I do also wonder, you know, what are your plans for passengers and crew members who do get sick in the future? You know, you know the horror stories of ships that were, you know, basically lost at right. sea. They couldn't find a home port. You, I know, and your team have spent, you know, a long time repatriating, you right. know, your crew members back home. So what do you do? Will there be a way to airlift passengers off ships? What will you do? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, we had to repatriate over 80,000 crew members, and it took us quite a while with borders closed and 
uh, airlines shut down, et cetera. So it took us several months to effectively do that, but we were eventually able to do it. With regards to now, you know, that was before. Now there's enough understanding. We would not go to a destination where we did not have a plan already in the event that there was COVID on board. We're not gonna tie up thousands of people off of one positive COVID case or a couple of positive COVID cases. You know, we would have the protocols in place to ensure one, that the individual is taken care of, who, whoever has it, that we can get them the care they need. Um, and then number two, that everyone else uh, is, is unaffected. You know, we would have some form of, of contact uh, tracing on board so we know who were the most exposed people. But we have to have those protocols for each destination. We go to 700 ports and destinations around the world. So they're all not gonna have the exact same protocols. And, and, but we will not go to a place where we haven't established exactly in the event there is a COVID case, exactly what's going to happen. All right, but you're not worried about, as we know, this virus, you know, spread so so quickly um, that you could go out to sea and end up with a handful of passengers or a lot more passengers, hundreds of passengers, and be kind of stuck at sea again. I mean, I'm just curious in that case. We won't, we won't sail on a situation where we could be stuck at sea. I think, um, again, there's a lot more knowledge now than mm -hmm. when that was happening. Uh, number one, you know, we'll have some capability of testing on board. When that happened before, we didn't. Uh, we, we will, there's a lot of understanding now about how to mitigate spread. Uh, back then, nobody was talking about, you know, while you were cruising, you know, potentially wearing masks or physical distancing, that, that kind of thing. And similarly, we have to look at the incidence of spread in a community. You know, we're not going to probably sell out of a community where the incidence of spread is very high uh, because you're almost certainly then going to have it, have it on board. We have a great um, group of advisors, um, scientific advisors. Right. A number of them participated in a uh, a summit on COVID that we held with the World Travel and Tourism Council it wasn't about travel, it wasn't about cruise, it was about the science of COVID. And um, a number of our advisors participated in that, um, that, that we, we produced and, and, and um, I co-hosted with Gloria Guevara from WTTC. Right. And so we're using their advice and of course every destination is studying this. Every port, every city, every nation. And we'll as always be in compliance uh, and so we'll all have a protocol in place because no one wants, you know, thousands of people, you know, stuck at sea. No, uh, nobody no, wants that. no doubt about and, that. I mean, what are you hearing, Arnold, right now from the CDC about what they want to see specifically from Carnival before heading out at sea again? Well, CDC is concentrating initially on uh, what we call the pause. Uh, you know, a, a number mm -hmm. of us volunteered to stop sailing and so on. And then the CDC issued on those sale orders. And so they've concentrated on the ships because even though we're in a pause, we still have 12,000 crew required to minimally man our ships. The ships are still out there, they're still operating. Right. And so the CDC focused on that initially. Uh, and now they've started a, a beginning to ask for public input and uh, to be submitted in terms of consideration um, for crews going forward. Uh, but there have been no specific direction given on what's expected. Uh, what we're going to do is, again, use our you know, expert advisory group to inform us, to use the experiences around the world right. that we have and others have. And we'll put together you know, the appropriate protocol at the time we think that it makes sense to begin to consider cruising again. That's Carnival Corporation President and CEO Arnold Donald. Check out that full conversation. It is, Jason, our extra podcast this week.
It is indeed. Great conversation. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty coming up in our next hour, including the interview with the man who has called every presidential election outcome correctly in the past four decades. It was my favorite conversation of the week, <laughs> I have to confess. Plus, another great conversation. MindBody founder, executive chairman Rick Stolmeyer. He talked to us about the importance of wellness and fitness during the pandemic. Fast-moving business. No doubt about that. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Plenty ahead for you in this hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Don't worry about the ads, the speeches, the debates, the tricks of the campaign. Keep your eye on the big picture. American University professor of history, Alan Lickman. He is really, really good (laughs) at predicting presidential elections. You're going to be talking about this one for sure. Plus, MindBody founder and executive chairman Rick Stolmeyer. He's writing a book about how to start a fitness company. He should know he started one in his garage. We're going to kick off this hour, though, Jason, with a very thoughtful conversation with Yates Enterprise founder and trauma surgeon, Dr. William Yates. He took his experiences in the operating room, created a company to help solve some of our current problems like gun safety and the virus. We caught up with him in Chicago and began with asking how his city is doing. If you go outside, it looks like a ghost town. The schools are paralyzed. They don't know what to do. The people, the constituents are afraid. They're anxious. They're unsure about the future. When I'm out all the time, people say, Doc, what's going to happen? What are we going to do? Not to mention it's an economic catastrophe here. The Tribune just wrote an article, 4,000 small businesses have gone out of business, and they expect a lot more to go out of business, even with all that stimulus check money. And, of course, one of the good things I see that's come out, the digital dependence is like increase, which has made, you know, remote work better, telemedicine and e-commerce is kind of flourishing. But other than that, it's pretty much bad news, I would say. Well, and, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up. I do wonder, Dr. Yates, you know, unfortunately, times of stress and disconnect often lead to better ways of doing things. And I do wonder, as you look at this world, and I don't want to see anybody lose their business. I don't want to see anybody be out of work. Um, but I do wonder, do we get to a better side, whether it's, you know, how you run business in businesses, how you do things, you know, more online, more digitally, you know, how education is run. Do we get to a better side? Medical, you know, we see a lot more telemedicine happening. Do we get to a better side in your view? Because I feel like you understand kind of the old ways of doing something and then also embracing technology. Right. Well, I mean, in every catastrophe, something good comes out of it. And I say what I see good coming out of this right now is that everybody has to be aware, say, of the business supply chain, that we can't be dependent on other countries to feed us, that we have to become autonomous. And that's very clear without explaining why. And the other thing is the digital platform has shown us how sophisticated it can be and how good it is. Say, like for education, I was thinking that, you know, some of the best teachers in the world can now reach some of the worst schools in the world with the digital platform. So that can be expanded. That's something good that has come out. And I think the other thing that we should concentrate on, there should be more information sharing between countries globally, because if that had happened in the beginning, I don't think, you know, we'd be in this situation. So uh, that's what I think the best things that have come out of this, and other than we all have to be united, which has not happened in the United States. It's so fragmented. These people do this, these do that, 
that's why the numbers keep increasing. Well, and Dr. Yates, what one area of fragmentation for sure is something you alluded to, which is the world of education. And Carol and I talk about it all the time from a personal perspective. Both have school age kids. Um, you know, we're seeing these headlines from University of North Carolina. We're seeing it from, you know, all sorts of places across the country. New York City sort of going its own way versus Los Angeles and San Francisco and Washington, D.C. and other places. I read a great New Yorker article today about Love at School down in my hometown of Atlanta. How should we be thinking about schools? This is something you've done some specific work. You've got equipment installed in schools doing thermal temperature checks. But how should we be thinking about education? I think there's a the way to actually go back to school and go back safely. College is another a- aspect of this because you have a school basically with an assisted living facility. So that's something altogether different. But I think schools can open safely if you do a couple things. or actually four things. Protect the students, and everyone knows what that means, wearing a mask, staying six feet apart, um, sanitizing. And then you need to screen for potential patients or kids or anyone that has the virus. And the way that you do that is questionnaires seem to be good. And also with objective data of fever, because anybody who's infected, the number one sign is usually going to be a fever. Now that won't catch the asymptomatic people, but still we know that people who are symptomatic will have a fever. The third thing I think is just broad testing, baseline testing. Everybody has to be tested and has to be tested often to know if they've contracted the virus. And fourth, is basically tracking. When you see clusters, you have to track, isolate, quarantine, whatever you need to do. And in the school system specifically, we've also developed kind of pod units Mm. where the students can be separated by basically a plastic uh, partition. And it's no way, if you do these things, if everybody does it, the teachers, administrators, and the students, you will not get coronavirus. So I got to say, it was fascinating reading about your background Tell me how you came to be a trauma surgeon to, or tell our audience, since I've already read a little bit about it, tell our audience about how you went from being a trauma surgeon to creating this company and why you decided to focus on, you know, these various uh, devices, whether it's metal detectors or whether it's, you know, being able to take temperatures. Tell us a little bit about that progress. Yeah. Well, as a trauma surgeon, I just became irritated with hearing over and over again about mass school shootings and violence and all the pain that it causes on the back end and the front end. So I always felt that a simple solution was being missed, such as metal detectors just being deployed in schools, open areas, municipalities and the like. So what I did was I started a company, uh, partnered with the manufacturer, started uh, distributing metal detectors, x-ray equipment to different schools, anybody that would listen to me about the effectiveness of this equipment. And that's Yates Enterprise founder, Dr. William Yates, an entrepreneur, a trauma surgeon, and really someone who's trying to make the world a better place, Carol. Yeah, taking his firsthand experience and fixing some of today's vexing problems. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Up next, the keys to the White House from the history professor who has correctly called the last four years of presidential elections. This is Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, Carol, so much going on this week, but politics front and center because we're 70 plus days away from a big election. And Jason, safe to say one of our more entertaining interviews this week, it was with Alan Lickman. He's Distinguished Professor of History at American University. He has a predictive model for figuring out U.S. presidential winners. And you know what, everybody? It consistently works. The fundamental insight behind the Keys model is that elections are essentially votes up or down on the strength and performance of the party holding the White House. That's what the 13 keys gauge. So forget the polls, forget the pundits, forget who's up and down on a daily basis. Don't worry about the ads, the speeches, the debates, the tricks of the campaign. Keep your eye on the big picture. And that's what the keys look at, the big picture of incumbent strength and performance, things like uh, midterm election results, third parties, long and short-term economy, scandals, social unrest, policy change, foreign policy successes and failures. And the way it works, if six or more of the keys, any six or more, it's nonlinear, go against the party holding the White House, they are predicted losers. Fewer than six, they are predicted winners. All right. So take us back to before we get to this current election that we're uh, experiencing. Take us back briefly to, to 2016. What was it that ultimately tipped it to candidate Trump? Yeah, that was probably the most difficult and closest call I've ever made. In my Washington Post interview where I predicted Trump's win, I said the keys very, very narrowly point to Trump. And, you know, uh, I hate to say it, but uh, Bernie Sanders one of the keys, and this was exactly a six-key election. So if any key had not turned, Clinton would have won. And one of the keys that turned was the internal nomination contest for the party holding the White House. By so strongly contesting Hillary Clinton, uh, Bernie Sanders turned a key. I'm not blaming him. He has a right to do that. But that was a very close call. Another very close call was the third parties which we know were quite strong in 2016. Gary Johnson went over 10% in some of the polls. So those were two of the late-breaking keys that were incredibly close that turned the tide against the Democrats, along with other keys such as uh, the lack of a big foreign policy achievement, not following up the Affordable Care Act with Republicans in control of Congress, with another big policy change, losing... uh, the midterm election. Very, very tight and tough call. This is what's so and cool. By the way, what, go ahead. No, please, go ahead. Right here on my wall, I have this note written on a copy of the Washington Post where I predicted Trump's win. It says, Professor, congrats, good call, and big Sharpie letters signed Donald J. Trump. So they follow. They follow this. It's so cool, though, these 13 keys. And you've mentioned some, you've mentioned them. Strong long-term economy, strong short-term economy, no third pa- party, no scandal, um, foreign military success, no social unrest, um, charismatic incumbent, uncharismatic challenger. I mean, these are the things that you're looking at. It's not just about the economy, stupid, as so many have said. No, that's a huge mistake that uh, a lot of analysts have made. If you were just looking at the economy, Hillary Clinton should have won going away. The economy was quite strong in 2016. Voters are not that narrow-minded. That's the the two things that make the keys different. 
is one, they don't look at any of the conventional campaigning, poll-driven punditry models. And two, they're not fixated on the economy like most econometric and political science models. All right. So let's talk about this election, uh, if we can. Um, As you go through the keys, how close is it? And what are the things you're most focused on? As you say, it's nonlinear, but they really, as you were going through all those keys, I'm going, check, 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 check. Yeah. Uh, But true or false, right? Yeah, exactly. So talk to us about what this looks like. Yeah. So I'll break it up. The end of 2019, Trump was only down four keys. He had a two-key cushion. Uh, the mandate key, obviously, they had lost in the midterm elections. The scandal key, you know, the only, uh, only the third president in history impeached by the full House, not to mention other issues. The lack of a big foreign policy success anywhere in the world. And my most controversial one, the fact that he was not one of those once-in-a-generation, truly inspirational candidates with broad appeal, like Reagan in the 1980s, who brought in all those Reagan Democrats. Trump's strong approval rating is only between 25 and 30 percent, and 60 percent or more don't like him and don't think he's on it. But he was only down four. Then we get hit with the pandemic and the cries for social and racial justice. And while Trump acknowledged my prediction, he didn't understand the system, which is, remember, it's governing, not campaigning, that counts. And instead of substantively dealing with these problems, he reverted to his 2016 playbook and thought he can talk his way out of them. It didn't work. It cost him three more keys. The short-term economy key, which is defined by an election year recession, which we have. The long-term economy key, because we had such negative growth that it brought his average well down. And the social unrest key, because of what's raging across the land. Never in the history of the United States, has the party holding the White House experienced such a dramatic reversal of fortune in a matter of three months. Trump goes from four keys down to seven keys down, one more than is needed to predict that he is going to lose in November. You have been spot on for 40 years, but you've also back-tested it for 120 years of U.S. presidential history. I mean, you checked it out, and it has really panned out. But I've got to ask you, and I know other people have have um, kind of pushed you on this. You did call Al Gore in 2000. Yes, yes, yes. Look, I'll, I'll make two comments on that. One, you want to say I'm right out of eight of nine, that's fine. <laughs> I like I how you think. Yeah. Two... Uh, what was the right call in 2000? I correctly called Al Gore to win the popular vote. He didn't win the Electoral College because he lost by 537 votes in Florida when the Supreme Court stopped the recount. That was a stolen election. Al Gore should have won Florida going away. And I proved this in my 2001 report to the United States Commission on Civil Rights when I showed that uh, there was this huge disproportion of discarded votes between African-Americans and whites. And then if you correctly assess the intention of voters without that suppression, Al Gore would have won going away. That's American University professor of history, Alan Lickman. Voter suppression, something that, as he noted, we are concerned about again, along with foreign meddling. Jason, when it comes to this November's outcome. 
Absolutely love that conversation. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we head to Miami, check in with the CEO of the Related Group. He's been watching real estate for four decades. There's a lot coming. Yeah, and some interesting new trends. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, real estate, Carol, we know it is a fascinating area, very important where you live and how you live. One guy who knows a ton about that, Related Group CEO, Jorge Perez. Right. They've got a portfolio of more than $40 billion in real estate holdings, largely adjacent in South Florida. And before getting into property trends and the real estate market, we did ask him about the virus in his home state and home city. As you know, we have not reacted well in Miami to the virus. It's been a, a bit of an, the epicenter of um, new cases. Um, We've, you know, opened up and then had to close back up um, the, you know, the interior uh, restaurants, interior of restaurants. Uh, and uh, it's been not an easy ride here. Um, um, unfortunately, we, um, we're not so good here at following instructions. Right. I'm very surprised that I still go out uh, for a walk and uh, almost half the people are not wearing masks in, in the street. So... Um, we need to do a much better job at at following directions and 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 keeping safe. Um, other than that, you know, Miami has been uh, helped in a way by the movement of uh, people from the northeast uh, towards Miami. We we had been seeing that um, previously, previously to the pandemic. Um, due to the uh, high taxes in in places like New York, uh, I think this has accelerated. You know, our single-family luxury home has been doing extremely well. A lot of buyers looking to move. Um, Carl Icahn and uh, other Wall Street people have uh, made the announcement that they're moving uh, permanently down uh, to Miami from New York and other areas. So, in, in in that respect, I think we are the beneficiaries. You know, the open air, the right. the, the sea, the the ocean. I just came from from a house that we have in Aspen, and Aspen is even that on steroids. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to now own a house in places that they see as being less congested, less prone to. Um, catching the virus. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. So when you think about, you know, your entire portfolio and also things that are in development and under construction, Jorge, how has that part of it gone in terms of your ability to sort of keep going with your business? Well, we've been, it's been a radical change. You know, we, we had to very rapidly figure out how do we work efficiently first from home and then how do we make our office safe for employees to return and and work there you know we 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 reacted very rapidly to that um you know zoom has become you know the the new trend uh we communicate every day um we've set up um a what a what's up system and a text system uh so all the key executives and and their groups are constantly in communication so our technology has improved tremendously um, because of uh, the virus. I think uh, this is something that we are going to see into the future. You know, mm-hmm. we, we have become much better, much more efficient at working 
from home, at communicating without being uh, face-to-face. But it's been a real uh, change in the way... um, we we communicate. We talk to people. We execute orders. Well, um, fortunately or, for us, we are in the multifamily business, which right. is probably the sector that has been least affected um, by the virus. Uh, retail, as you know, and yeah. hotels, uh, convention places, restaurants um, have all been affected to a much greater extent than than we have. Our collections. Um, have in these months been all over uh, 90%, which is, um, you know, above the national average. Um, So, you know, we have been relatively lucky as a company in that we've adapted rapidly. We dropped a lot of the urban jobs, all the retail jobs. We moved to suburban locations um, rapidly in our development, and I think for the next at least year that is going to be the preferred um, housing type. You know, people are afraid of being in close uh, environments. Um, so I think uh, you, we can see it. Our high rises have taken a much greater hit than our suburban products. Um, and, and, and it's been a shift, you know, and we are used to, you know, Florida. I always think of Florida as a roller coaster. So we're used to up and down and up and down and moving very rapidly to adapt to change. That's the Related Group CEO, Jorge Perez. And Jason, as we just heard from him, it's all about the pivot. Related Group did that very quickly, moving from urban to suburban projects during the pandemic. Yeah, the cities, the burbs, where are people going to live? It's one of the big questions we keep asking. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. One thing we know, people are working out. We discuss the importance of wellness amid the new world order. Our conversation with MindBody founder, Rick Stolmeyer. It is so important. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. As we wrap up this week, Jason, we know one of the things we've talked about a lot since we've all been working from home so much is about staying mentally and physically fit. Absolutely. No better person to talk about that than the founder and executive chairman of MindBody. They are the guts of the entire fitness business. Talking about Rick Stolmeyer. Check it out. What we're seeing right now is a supply-constrained market. People want their fitness classes. They want their wellness services and experiences more than ever. And, you know, one of the, well, I guess one of the unintended consequences of this mishmash of state and and regional reactions or or responses to COVID is that what we've seen around the country is, you know, some states never really closed down completely. Other states reopened very quickly. Um, We all know those stories. You know, you're in the tri-state area, which has been probably the model of how how disciplined the approach has been. Um, what we've seen in every one of those cases is when the businesses are open or when they reopen, uh, they get flooded with consumer interest because people's wellness has been severely impacted by this pandemic. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting. So you talk about people flooding back, and I do think about what about new folks who maybe thought – okay, it's not that important. I've got work to do or I've got, you know, X to do. And now they're saying, wait a minute, this has got to be fitness, wellness, have to be a part of my regular living. Well, that's right. I mean, we all know, of course, you know, the pre-existing conditions around obesity 
mm-hmm. hypertension, heart disease, cardiovascular disease, uh, type 2 diabetes. Those things, of course, have been shown to be major risk factors for COVID. And, and I think people, a lot of people have gotten that memo. I mean, people that I talk to, people that I see, um, at the same time, being restricted to our homes for, for such an extended period of time, you know, for many people, they put on weight. Uh, for many people, they, their, their fitness has struggled. Um, and then lastly, you know, wellness isn't just physical, is it, right? It's also emotional well-being. It's a sense of social connection. It's community. And I think we're all suffering in this country, in fact, in most of the world, from the impact of having all of that so severely disrupted. And, and it, it's why we remain very bullish about the industry we serve for the long term. But, of course, this is a really challenging time on, on both the consumer side and the business owners. We have, we have been doing what we can to advocate um, both in, the, uh, in, in Washington as well as uh, at the state capitals. Uh, I plan personally to do a lot more of that. You know, I, as you alluded to at the beginning here, um, I've just transitioned from being CEO. I mean, a role that I've had for 20 years, handed the baton to Josh McCarter. He's our new CEO. And Sunil Rajasekhar, who was our CTO, has been elevated to president and CTO. I mean, this is a dream team. These, these guys and the executive team around them, by far the strongest we've ever had. So I can feel very confident in, in the company's continued growth and, and innovation. And what I want to spend more of my time doing is that outwardly facing role. Um, these, these businesses are almost all small business owners. Even if you owned an Orange Theory Fitness or an S45 franchise, for example, the, the, the classic franchisee is, is a, uh, typically like a, a two spouses um, who uh, invested in this business and are running it hands-on every day. And, of course, so many of these businesses are just independent mama-papa shops. And no one has been advocating on their behalf. Even looking at how the states generally have, have issued edicts around whether they could open and close as sort of a broad brush. You know, no gyms can open. So it doesn't matter if it's a 80,000 square foot health club with hundreds of people streaming through the door or a small little yoga Pilates or, or group exercise studio that maybe in normal times might have had 20 people in class. Right. And now with social distancing, they have maybe eight people. I mean, these, it's not high risk. It, right. They, we have seen firsthand, if you take the proper precautions, the social distancing, the mask wearing, you can go in and have a great experience right. very safely. And I'm not sure, I don't think many people are telling that story to our, yeah. our government leaders who are making these decisions. So, Rick, you and I caught up a little earlier in the pandemic for the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. And, you know, one of the things we were talking about is, and this goes back to where we left off in our conversation. These are small businesses, many of these boutique studios, especially mom and pop Mm -hmm. type shops. Uh, A lot of them are just going to go out of business. I think you had even predicted maybe a quarter of them uh, would just ultimately have to hang it up, fold up shop. What do you, what do you make of that prediction now? Well, it hasn't happened yet. Um, These businesses have proven far more resilient than we've hoped, and of course, we've been rooting for them from the very beginning of the uh, of the pandemic. And you know, immediately when the as the the lockdown started in late March, they started adapting. And of course, the, the most obvious thing was delivering their classes and experiences via video, and so live streaming video and then putting up libraries of video on demand. They started doing that spontaneously, and MindBody has been innovating rapidly. Uh, we now have a virtual wellness platform that enables them to do that in a way that they can have sustainable uh, businesses. And you and I talked about that, Jason. Uh, now what you see, of course, is a lot more 
of these activities going on outside. Um, yeah. And the science indicates that being outside is just simply safer than being in a room with recirculating air. And lastly, of course, is just immac- immaculate cleanliness, uh, a lot more distance between uh, workout stations, um, and everybody wearing masks. And, you know, we've, what, what we have seen, um, I think, is a remarkable adaptation of an industry. That being said, you know, this kind of brutal two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back, uh, you know, at some point is going to start taking a toll. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we're rooting for all of uh, these businesses, um, but I think we still are probably going to expect some, some notable uh, amounts of business failures in the months ahead, given what it just appears that the pandemic is how it's going to develop. And then we're not going to get out of this very challenging situation, right, for at least a, a few quarters, probably. Yeah, it kind of breaks my heart about those who have, as you said, sometimes it's a, it's a couple who started a business and they're just not going to make it through. Um, you talk about live streaming. There's in-studio, there's outdoor classes, depending on, you know, kind of where you live. You know, Rick, what we love about talking with you is, you know, you guys do have the platform where you, you get insight into so many different businesses. What other data points are you able to kind of see that are revealing about what's going on right now and, and what might continue for, for some time or kind of stay with us as we all kind of pivot and, and kind of embrace some of these changed ways of doing things, including working out and staying well? Well, first of all, we're seeing you know, rising consumer demand for these activities of all types, of all categories. And of course, fitness is the leading part of that. Um, we see high sensitivity on the consumer side. We've been surveying you know, millions of consumers on our platform, uh, and we've been surveying people in a scientific way. And you know, more than 90% of consumers indicate that, yes, rigorous sanitization is important. The, uh, about three-fourths of them say the new layouts are really important, and they like what they're seeing. If you haven't visited one of these studios in a long time or since the pandemic started, I encourage you to go look at it and understand it. Um, we can now leverage technology in ways that really just minimize the kind of contact. So, for example, contactless check-in and contactless payments. Um, that's extremely important to consumers today. And I, I think that uh, it, it is going to be challenging for these businesses, but, but the ones that do get through this, the do that weather this, are going to face a, a really remarkable market. Um, and uh, for some of the most forward-leaning businesses, what they're doing is, as they see uh, in downtown retail areas, of course, businesses of all types have been failing. That's opening up space. Mm. And you see the more well-capitalized brands uh, swooping in because it was really a shortage of prime retail space that was holding back the industry before COVID hit. And so I think you're going to see a real changeover. Um, lastly, the ability, if I'm going to commit to a membership or a prepaid package at this particular studio, well, I want to know that regardless of what happens, whatever the state of, of social distancing restrictions or lockdowns in my region, that I'm going to be able to keep engaging. So just being able to have hybrid memberships is, is very important to people today. And, and we see that happening uh, already in, in the businesses that we're serving. If I can just follow that, I also do wonder by having such a platform as your own, it kind of creates um, a tracing platform that, you know, if a case breaks out at a certain, you know, studio or workout or gym, you know, place that immediately you can say, okay, these were the people that were there and we can kind of be right on top of it from the get-go. We haven't been asked to divulge that data. I mean, we treat data confidentiality, both the business's confidential data and consumer's confidential data very seriously. So um, 
it's not something that, that, that we would just um, easily offer up. But if there were some kind of organized process uh, you know, to, that, that we could assist, and of course we'd have to get people's permission, I think, right. to, to allow us to share what you're talking about. That's MindBody founder and executive chairman Rick Stolmeyer, And it was interesting because we do know his platform, right, Jason? They have access to a lot of data. And I do wonder, you know, how people might use that, especially in a COVID-19 era, to make sure that they can open up their businesses, but also keep everybody who goes to gyms and workout facilities, make sure we keep them safe. Yeah, certainly watch this space. It's fast moving and really important, maybe more important than ever, as we think Mm. about how to stay healthy going into the fall. Well, that's going to wrap up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser, wrapping up week 22 for most of us still working from home. Be sure to check out our daily show Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. That's where all of these interviews come from. And check it out if you miss it. If you're not tuning in live, you can get it all on our podcast feed, wherever you get your podcast. You can also watch us on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search Bloomberg Global News. And don't forget, check out Bloomberg Business Week magazine. So many stories, including our special double issue. It's called The Vaccine Issue. It's on newsstands now. It's on the Bloomberg Terminal, and of course, always at Bloomberg.com. We'll see you right back here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.